We are here with Brianna Gitko, who is a graduate student. Django. Django. Django, I'm the worst. Django, oh, thank you. Uh, Randy Django at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, so, Randy, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks so much for inviting me. So, yeah. I wanted to uh, tell an amusing memory I have of you, if you're okay with it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not the first time I met you, but it is the, the, the imprint on my mind. Uh, so I recently spent a week at Notre Dame running saliva samples to get uh, cortisol measurements from them. And Rietti had come into the lab and he had this giant plastic bag filled <laughs> with, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of fingernail clippings. And he yep. sat down kind of across from me, opened the bag, pulled out a few samples, and then with this great sigh just said, I can't do this right now. <laughs> Dams the fingernails back into the bag, shoves the bag across the room, and just leaves the lab. <laughs> and I feel like that is something that every single one of us can relate to. When we are faced with like this mountain of data analysis, there are just days it cannot happen. That, that did in fact happen. Um, and, and it did take a while for me to get back into the lab and actually go through all of those. And just so everyone knows, I'm not some creeper who just collects fingernails. <laughs> um, Although there's nothing wrong with that. It could be a hobby. It's okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if that's what you're into, that's, you know, more power to you. But uh, no, I, I was collecting fingernails actually for cortisol. And a, a Guess what? Ooh. There's yeah. a fire alarm going off in my building. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, All right. Do we need to postpone for a little bit? So how about you and Chris keep the interview going without me and I will leave the meeting and I will text Chris if I can come back. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I doubt there's a fire. There's probably an idiot. It's usually... <laughs> well, we'll miss you. Yeah. All right. Well, have fun. Uh, Rudy, it's a great paper, and thank you again. <laughs> Thanks, Kara. Bye. So, Rudy, uh, I want to hear the rest of your, your story, but I used to, I was a grad student where she is now a professor, and when I TA'd, uh, I would be teaching, and that same alarm in that same building would go off, and I would get frustrated because it would always happen at the worst possible moment until it happened while I was teaching once and I may have f-bombed in front of the class and said this better be real as <laughs> I interrupted and dragged everyone out and it just so happens there was a real fire and it was literally in the room next to where I was teaching so a little humbling moment so let's hope care is okay yeah yeah so fingernail clippings, we know that yeah. you can extract cortisol from fingernail clippings. I didn't see anything about those in your paper, so do tell. Yeah, so this is actually a new thing that basically dissertation work is also at Kakuma, where the, the study site for this paper that we're taught is. But um, I wanted to collect cortisol, and there is nowhere to store um, saliva samples as they should be stored in this refugee camp. Um, so saliva was out. Um, the other major vector for cortisol analysis is usually hair, but I'm working with a Muslim population in my dissertation of refugees and women are not going to give me their hair. Men have hair that's way too short to do cortisol analysis on. So I was, I was kind of stuck. Um, and I found out actually that 
there are few people who have started doing cortisol analysis and fingernails. Lee Gettler, one of my advisors, and I talked about this. We actually got in touch with Lynette Lady Sievert to see if, if she knew anyone who was doing this. And she directed us to a lab at UMass Amherst. Dr. Jerry Meyer, who is a, a neuroscientist, has, has started doing court analysis of fingernails. So that created a partnership with his lab. So we've, we've actually been working with him for, for the past several months on projects. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't, this isn't, this isn't in the paper. So obviously this wasn't a question I had prepared. So I hope you don't mind me probing this. Cool. You know, we, a lot of us are doing biomarkers like this and looking for, for innovative ways to get at other aspects of, of stress, stress response. My understanding of hair and fingernails though, is it's more of chronic stress, whereas saliva is more acute stress. So is that what you're looking for? So how does it, how does, how does it stand in for what you would see in saliva? Yeah, uh, fingernails, of course, are very much like hair. Uh, they made of keratin. It's thought, although not, it, it, it hasn't been proven exactly how cortisol is uptaken into hair or fingernails, but um, we, we think that it's in a similar way. You're absolutely right. Um, what you're going to see in fingernails or hair is more of an accumulation of, of cortisol or testosterone and steroid hormone. So actually this worked to my benefit, in fact. So instead of, instead of taking, you know, like three or four cortisol um, samples from saliva per day for several days in a row or in multiple weeks, I was able to actually only collect, I collect three fingernail samples from each individual um, at 10 day intervals over 30 days. So yeah, what this is telling me is more, is more about chronic stress than the, the more acute stress that you would see from a saliva sample um, of court. And that's, that's honestly what I was looking for anyway. It, it worked out well. So do you capture any variation between the samples? Like in that 10 day window, can you see the stress in that window? And, oh, it's the, uh, an amount of cortisol that's directly proportional to how much cortisol was produced during that time. Yeah. But actually, the, the fingernail samples are still being analyzed. I just sent them to uh, Jerry Meyer's lab a couple of weeks ago. So we don't really have the results yet. I'm really interested to see what the results are going to look like. But, but that's kind of what I'm expecting. Yeah, obviously, I am too. This is, uh, I mean, I, I'm not a methods person. I'm a, I'm a question person. So I always have questions, and I'm always looking for a new way to get at them. And fingernail court and hair court are, and, and for the same reasons, you know, working in remote field sites where preservation may be difficult, where people find it gross to spit in a tube, where yeah. there may be a religious prohibition against giving away certain things. So all the above. Yeah, it's, it is tough, actually. Um, I think there are some people that I was a witch with this stuff it, it, among the refugee population. Uh, although they're, the refugees are really used to researchers coming in and doing various things, mostly like surveys and interviews, that kind of thing. But they're, they're used to public health workers and actually a great thing, but at least they're like, they, they understand research in a yeah. way that members of the host community aren't as familiar with. Uh, when I was working with Turkana, I wasn't doing anything at all invasive. I wasn't collecting any sort of samples, blood, fingernails, hair, saliva, anything. I was using the skinfold calipers, mm. 
measure the you know, amount of body fat they have. There were still a lot of people who were very suspicious of this, no matter how many times I would try to explain what I was doing or demonstrate what I was doing on my own to show them that I was not injecting them with this guy is either taking our blood or I mean, of course, I'm, I'm not forcing anyone. I made it very clear that they're free to, you know, to leave, not participate at all. But there were some people who, who were like, okay, no, this is fine. Yeah, just go ahead and do what you need to do. And yeah. then afterward, uh, like one lady said, you're taking my blood back to America. I know you are. And this was after, you know, I'm not. <laughs> so yeah. these kinds of ethical dilemmas are, are actually very present. I think they're present everywhere. I had similar uh, experience working with white middle-class fundamentalist Christians in New York when I was collecting saliva samples during my research. They were, they were, you know, concerned that I would do something with their DNA, and you know, despite all assurances to the contrary, and despite the pastor, who had at least a master's degree, had some a sense of what I was doing. There was. There was, let's say, understandable distrust, right? We can, yeah, we can appreciate people's skepticism about the motives of scientists, politicians, bureaucrats. That's the world we live in. We and I know sub-Saharan there, there's good reason to distrust uh, a white researcher. This region have been subjected to against their will, without their knowledge in the past, have been injected with. Uh, bacteria, viruses—you know these these agents that can cause a lot of harm um, without their consent—and so it's it's definitely so getting around the the ethical violation. People in the past has become you know part of our labor actually. Yeah. Oh, look who's back! <laughs> I didn't know there was no fire. You know, we still haven't gotten started on the actual question. We've been talking about hair court, so. We're not talking about ethics. So now that Kara's back, let's let's proceed with the uh, the stuff that you knew we were going to ask you. And let me back up and just say, uh, Rihanna Jengo, uh, who who we have been talking to, is are you a doctoral student or candidate? Because that's important. I'm a candidate now. All right, at Notre Dame yeah. and uh, HBA member Lee Gettler is your chair, or he's on your committee. So. Okay. The bio side is Rahul Oka. Oh, cool. So true biocultural. I like that. Yeah, after absolutely. my own heart. I'm doing so, my best. So you're the lead author on an article that was published online last fall in AJHB and appeared in print earlier this year, where you examined the health impacts of a refugee camp in Kenya, which we've already been talking about a little bit, on rural undeveloped communities uh, near the camp, which is situated, right? So looking at the impact of NGO efforts to help refugees and how that trickles out essentially yeah yeah basically what we're what we're really looking at is not so much um the ngos and their investment entity but rather we're looking at how the presence of refugees themselves affects cities so it's the refugees who have actually established this huge market in kakuma local regional there's actually very little support or input from the the NGOs in terms of refugee markets and refugee business ownership, this kind of, of trade that I mean, technically the refugees it's this it's this, I guess, humanitarian aid model of dependence that was worldwide for decades, where refugees 
are really just supposed to be passive that if you and HCR are, are starting to uh, part of it as, as because of Rahul Oka's kind of where he showed NGOs how showed UNHCR how uh, they're perceived by refugees actually rather oppressive indie that so you know basically what I'm trying to say is that refugees have basically on their own created this this huge very influent and it's having how interesting so um I'm curious just to sort of again back up a little bit like about you like we want to know the narrative of the science and the scientists so What's your background? How did you come to study anthropology? And then how did you get involved in this particular area of research? Well, I've always loved science um, ever since I was a little kid. Like, who hasn't, right? But I've also, even since I was small, been completely fascinated with what makes humans do what they do. So I I guess I've always kind of realized that people are weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think anthropology was a natural fit for me, right? Of course, I had no idea what anthropology was when I started college. And like about a quarter class, I was I was when I began. But I was also lucky enough to to go to a college called Davidson, home of Steph Curry. So- he was in my class. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I couldn't mention basketball. I am not immune to a roll tide from uh, my Alabama vantage, so go for I it. Know. Sports come up in this podcast on a regular basis for one another. It's <laughs> culture. That and our pets. <laughs> I, I mean, we're people too. But anyway, so I had uh, I had a lot of opportunity in the arts, humanities, sciences. I also, you know, because of my history, I also came into anthropology and I actually entered the discipline because that was my, and actually when I did my A before I came to Notre Dame, it was logical study, racial health. So when I got to Notre Dame, I wanted to kind of shift my and Rahul. And, and so in my first summer here, after that, I was hooked and I've, I've been working. Would you mind walking us through some of the results that you've... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Give us the big takeaways. Well, first of all, I think it's to understand some of our... Talk about that. Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> what we wanted to know is basically how the opportunities for consumption, trade uh, related to the refugee camp might affect in ways that are similar to intent. So first of all, we needed a, a so we chose three sites. One site was a rural population, almost entirely past, far enough from Kakuma that there's, there's some interaction, but it's, uh, it's really remote. So we chose a site to ask basically what would Kakuma look if the refugee camp, uh, we also chose Another site called which it has a, a decades long history. Primary insect there is food and water stability. So this is kind of to compare you know, our. So of course this site is the comparison how uh, refugee presence is is or isn't similar. And then finally we chose another site, a border town near called Lokichogio. Basically, this town was the center for the UN relief the South Sudan conflict for years. But in 2006, this effort started to Juba. And by 2009, almost all of the NGOs. So now, Lokichogio is really just a real, it's actually very much like, the economy there is very much like a boom and bust. I literally saw tumbleweed rolling <laughs> down the main road when I was there in 20. <laughs> There's literally tumbleweed. 
It's it's not just like a figment of Hollywood. Tumblr no, are real. No, no. <laughs> it's there. Um, <laughs> so we use this town to basically represent what might happen to Kakuma if the refugee. And this is not only an academic or theoretical. There's, uh, there's been several times when the Kenyan government has both Kakuma and refugee camp, which are two of the. And I just want to interject that just from your sample characteristics, the Lokichog, say it again? Lokichogyo. Lokichogyo security uh, worries are off the chart relative to everyone else's. I mean, yes. 43%, is it 43%? Is that the, is that, I'm not sure if that's the statistic you're, you're citing, but the others are, are all below 20. And yeah. They're, wow. Yeah, and part of that is because um, because it is a border are more or less in conflict with at least one just across the border from Lokichogyo in South Sudan to Toposa, which Turkanas are are very much in conflict with. So when I was there, um, a lot of people talked about conflicts with Toposa, cattle raiding that happened recently, and this cattle raiding is not it's not just you know, a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys come take cattle, but also any other possessions they pick up and carry with them. They kill people and are abducted and taken. And this is something that Turkana also do. But it's very, it, it's essentially a low-level war zone, not only in Lokichokyo, but across, <laughs> across Turkana. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's probably related worries. Yeah, that makes in, sense. So, I mean, there, it sounds like Gosh, it sounds like you've got so much. Your dissertation sounds like it's probably going to be a book. You're going to have a lot <laughs> to write about. And I'm, I'm, you know, there, there are several things that jumped out to me in this. You know, two of them. I'll give you the opportunity you find to be the most compelling. But there were different impacts for women as opposed to men. So I'm curious as to how you would interpret the disparities. But I'm also, you know, I want to hear about. It, it sounds like uh, the refugees have developed a, a sense of th that they can push back a little bit on some of the issues with the with NGOs feel like they're oppressive and starting stuff so I'm, I'm curious what the most rewarding and and also the hardest parts of doing field work like this have been yeah yeah I can I can definitely start with the rewarding part <laughs> I just actually realized that your question from before, what were your findings? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually answer that. I just talked about our methods. But in any case, personally, one of the most rewarding things about this is that I can see real-world implications. There are, you know, imagine ways in which the work that we're doing can actually, if I've worked as well as Rahul with, with people from the world, people from UNHCR, this is really a, a very large-scale collaboration. So this, the data that are are only one part of, of a large collaboration us at Notre Dame and also the, so that's that's been really rewarding to but actually another part of the another rewarding this research when I went initially in for various reasons and so and so very quickly I had to learn how to operate independent less than ideal conditions and get a lot of yeah, that can be intimidating. Good. Oh, it was intimidating, but I, I realized that I could do it, and that was fantastic. Yeah. I, I I got back, and Rahul asked me, "So how many? You asked me to get six hundred. I got six hundred and one." And he said, "What? 
<laughs> I told you 600, but I, I thought maybe you would come back with, I don't know, 200 or something. Yeah. Like 50 from each site instead of 150. <laughs> and I was thinking, what? Like, if you wanted, if you wanted 200, why didn't you tell me that? But you know, <laughs> hey, I, realized, I realized that I could actually operate on my own. It was hugely beneficial when I went by myself in 2017 to 2020. Which is funded by NSF, right? Yes, yes. Congrats so, on that. Thank you. Yeah. So I was extremely to get both the NSF DD field work great. <laughs> we all cross I'm not gonna we I'm always question when we when good things happen. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure being the person who could get five days of training and collect six hundred samples had nothing to do with it. So nothing. <laughs> also, um okay. so I kind of have a follow-up question uh, to keep things moving along because we're in a, a slight bit of a timeline for my... So you said you've been working with, with the WHO. Is that part uh, results as well? The World Bank. The World Bank. Our so, main contact is Varalakshmi Bamuru. Uh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's okay. It's just that reading these results, I can so see how it would piss people off because there is this like anti-immigrant, anti-rent going around. And I'm wondering if you are facing a lot of kind of those years or sort of lip service as, oh yeah, this is great, but we're so going to ignore it because it doesn't fit our... I'm just curious if you've encountered any of that. Yeah, um, I personally haven't, but that's that's because so far I've mainly apologists, people who may be inclined to to think critically about development work, about, about but I do suspect that as I, as I personally, I might get some pushback or maybe like you said, but uh, I think there are there are two really important uh, larger issues addressing. First of all, you know, there's there's a lot of focus on Syrian refugees now, as there should be, but we also have to throughout the world. And for example, in Kakumam, since it opened, there are people arrived there as children who now have children. So this is this is becoming all essentially urban, and as as can, refugee camps are, it's becoming very similar in Jordan. Another thing is that refugees, of course, have a lot and bring opportunities and benefits that, that most people, we talk about refugees, Europe to the United States, there's a political discourse, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of nail biting that, that goes into thinking about, oh my God, every, everything's changing, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what are research and refugees wherever they go? I think you're right. I think, and for two reasons, you're preaching to the choir, so you're not going to get a lot of pushback from anthropologists. We we exactly. certainly agree with you, but I I really appreciate that you you're providing the evidence that policymakers in the U.S. need to say, look, a refugee community is a boon to the undeveloped uh, rural neighboring communities that were already there that we're supposedly imposing on. So good on you. That's that's great. Yeah. And if we felt up for it, and I would get Lee in behind this too, contacting the Notre Dame public police on this kind of have yeah. people look at it. Have people, it's it's important. <laughs> Which is what we're trying to help you do right here. So um, hopefully this, this we can also be preaching to the choir here too. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something to think about. And I mean, because you could get a, a lot of negative flack on this kind of thing, definitely talk great thing to. Uh, yeah, I was I was just gonna say. In response to about our findings, disparities between men and women, basically our findings were that yes, uh, the the presence of refugees does have a a, a positive benefit for host community, but 
as you mentioned, there are these, these disparities. We found that women are doing much better at us across the board, but especially in Kakuma. While men aren't really doing that well any, so we think that there are probably a lot of reasons for this, but one of them could be that men are, are largely ignored in public health, pretty well-known now development discourse, and we have good reasons for that, but men's health, and that could be one thing. Uh, we also think that part of the disparity may be related to a shift in emphasis across the region, primarily pastoral um, to one. Another thing is, is climate change. There's, there's more droughts than in this already very, very arid region. They're lasting for long, more severe. And so the uh, amount of available grazing is nearly responsible for animal care. And so part of this disparity could be uh, among men who have to do more work to herd their livestock than they used to, or food availability. Uh, comment is that men, as well as the elderly, um, have been shown to, to reduce their own food so that there'll be, um, so that, that could be there as well. But also speaking of disparities, if you look closely at our results, we show that there's a wider distribution of nutrition in both Taco camp area and the, there are a lot of people doing great in terms of nutritional status, but there are also a lot who are doing mm. So what I think this is telling us is that while there are some important benefits to both refugee development strategies, benefits don't reach, which is not surprising, right? It's been demonstrated a lot in the past that people in host communities or people in development projects who are doing well before tend to improve, but those who were the poorest in most either state. Well, how can people get in touch with you to, to learn more about your obviously ongoing research? Yeah, well, people uh, read about our research, ResearchGate. Uh, so all of us have ResearchGate sites that, that people can, they can find out more about what's ecology department at anthropology.edu. They can also find our content. I'm on Twitter. My handle is at Rieti Gengo, R-I-E-T-I-G-E-N-G-O. So people can read more about issues migration there. Gettler is also on Twitter, Seed as well. There are a lot of ways. Awesome. That's great. Well, well Rudy, thank you so much for doing the important work. Like, these are questions that are super applicable. And thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. For putting uh, up with fire alarms. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that won't happen again. That's the man. That's the man trying to keep us down. So let me wrap uh, with our with our with our wrap. The Sausage of Science is produced by Karen Chris for the Human Biology Association. Michaela Howells is the committee chair. You can also find Kara on Twitter at Kara Akabak. So C A R A O C O B O C K. And you can find me at Chris underscore L Y. Please subscribe to the Sausage of Science, rate us on iTunes, tell your friends, do all the things. We're hoping to hire a student producer soon to tighten some of these ums and ahs and bad jokes <laughs> up. So let us know if you're interested and thank you all for listening. Thanks everyone.